The punchline of this whole text that Peggy read is this quotation from Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But these words can't have much punch if you don't know where and when these words come from to begin with. They're not going to mean a whole lot if we don't know why John would say this or where he's saying it from or who John even is. It's kind of like when Martin Luther King Jr., a black man in 1963, stands in front of the memorial to the president who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, speaking in the heat of the civil rights struggle, and that man says, I have a dream. The power of those words would be way different if those same words are said by just some random guy speaking in a small village gazebo in 2012, right? Like there's context that makes what we hear today far more significant if we know what the context is. Prepare the way of the Lord. This punchline, this impact sentence is a quote taken straight from the book of Isaiah. It's a quote that once it would have been said, people would have been like, oh yeah, oh, I know this one. It was offered in Isaiah's time, like 500 plus years before John and Jesus, as good news directed at a particular circumstance in a very particularly scary, terrible time. It is significant that John would quote this message from Isaiah. It's also meaningful that he'd say it in the middle of nowhere. And that it's John who says it, not some emperor or high priest who says it. Prepare the way of the Lord is a loaded phrase with meaning when you know where it comes from and why it was said originally and into what circumstance. But it takes on exponentially more significance when you know the who, the what, the where, and the why of this gospel moment recounted by Luke. And what that moment almost 2,000 years ago from us means to us now in 2021. This wasn't just a radical quote-to-quote then. It's a life-changing thing for us to hear and believe today. So, as we launch in, I'm just warning you, this is really good news. Are you ready? Maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't go on. I'll go on anyway. So, Luke 3 begins very majestically, very formally. In the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came. It reminds me of like the -the over-the-top introductions that are almost sung by ringside announcers at boxing matches. Not that I watch a lot of boxing, but... In the main event, there's that guy. He shows up actually at a lot of sporting events. That guy that sings, let's get ready to rumble, right? Have you ever heard this guy? So I actually looked him up as I was writing this sermon. His name is Michael Buffer. Great name. And you can get his famous tagline to be your ringtone if you'd like. So imagine your phone ringing and every time it does, you hear, let's get, and you, you know, try to be turning it off. Anyway, 
There was one fight where this was how, and this is liter- these are the words he used to introduce the champ. So I want you to imagine what this looks like. Imagine the camera through this whole thing just focused solely on one enormous human being with a shiny satin robe over his sweaty head, and he's just brooding, looking tough, because he is, and he's just looking right at the other corner as this is said. In this corner, wearing red, officially weighing in at 111 and a half kilograms, that's 245 pounds, big man. This Olympic gold medal winner has a professional record consisting of 62 victories, including 53 knockouts and undefeated for a decade, originally from Ukraine, but he lives and fights out of Hamburg, Germany, with the WBA, the WBO, the IBO, the IBF titles. He is universally recognized as the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, Dr. Steel Hammer, Vladimir Klitschko, and the crowd goes wild, and it actually takes over a minute for him to get all those words out. This is the world champion. And that's the kind of thing Luke is trying to do at the front of his gospel in this beginning to this chapter, in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius. And then he goes on and on and on to name the powers that were in this particular moment in history, who the emperor was, who the governors were, who the high priests were, and more. How would we do this today to try to name the powers that are in our world? At the close of the first year of the reign of President Biden, eight years, nearly 300 days after Xi Jinping took power in China, 14 years after the release of the first iPhone, when Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk waged billionaire battles with rockets, amidst the beginning of the third year of the worldwide coronavirus pandemic, the Word of God came. Those are the powers of our day, right? Into that power, God comes? That's quite a claim that is being made. That's what Luke is trying to have everybody understand. See, Luke is, I mean, to help us understand what a giant big deal the punchline is, he names the most important earthly powers he can come up with who represent the religious, the political, and the economic foundations of Jerusalem. Collectively, the people Luke names, they hold all the power that wealth, military strength, and bloodlines can. They control what goes into the system that is the culture and life of their region. They control what's allowed to happen there, and they control what gets to leave from there. They have all the control. So if the Word of God is going to come into that place, the proper and appropriate channel for that Word, as it is for everything and everyone else, would be to arrive at the feet of the emperor. And if not the emperor, maybe at the feet of the governor, or at least at the feet of a high priest. That's the only place things were allowed to come in through. And that's the point. God could not possibly care less about where God's Word is supposed to come in through, where it's supposed to be proclaimed according to the world. In fact, what God cares about is to make a statement, not just with what is said, in this case, prepare the way of the Lord. God makes a statement not only with what is being said, but who says it. 
and where it gets said. And of all places, it definitely isn't going to come from where the powers of this world want it to come from, because the powers of this world can then control it. If you put it at the feet of the emperor, he can then make it his own, right? And so, it's supposed to come through the temple or the palace. Those are God's options. Instead, God says, yeah, I'm going to do my thing from the wilderness, not the temple or the palace. It's another reminder for us that God works in unexpected ways. We should expect that by now. And that's good news. Remember I told you this was going to be really good news? Luke says, the Word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This would have been a familiar formula for introducing a prophet. Like at a basketball game, for example, starters are introduced in a very formulaic way. Like at a pro basketball game, you'd hear what college they went to, what position they're about to play, what their height is, and then their name. Like that's how, that's how it goes. You'd, you'd just know, oh, this is, this is how we introduce people at a game. Well, prophets got introduced in a very formulaic way too. Like for Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel it says, on the fifth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel son of Butzi, in the land of the Chaldeans. And yes, his dad's name was Butzi. John's introduction makes him sound like a prophet because he is. So Luke has named all the most important, powerful people in the world, and the Word of God not only doesn't come to any of them, it comes to John. And not only does it come nowhere near their power center, Jerusalem, it comes from the wilderness now, I could do a whole month of sermons on wilderness. Wilderness is where the Israelites were lost before being graced with the promised land. Luke, in his own gospel, is going to use wilderness later as the setting for the testing and hunger of Jesus. It is a place routinely throughout Scripture. Wilderness is typically a place of danger, a place of destruction. It represents a place of vulnerability a place of uncertainty. The world doesn't announce things from places of vulnerability or uncertainty. The world announces things through emperors and through presidents and influencers and corporate titans from places of strength. God appears in a place of vulnerability and danger through a prophet who's dressed in camel's hair who eats locusts. God doesn't need rocket ships to prove His strength. He doesn't need titles to wield power. That's the point. Of course, for us who know the story of God, the wilderness is the perfect place for God to show up. When the Israelites were lost in the wilderness, God provides manna every day as a way to teach God's people to trust God, depend on God, rely on God alone anywhere and always, but especially in times of trial, especially in any wilderness that you may be experiencing. The most, example, the most extreme example of wilderness known to Israel in their history as a collective was their exile. Their promised land had been conquered by the Babylonians. They wondered whether God remembered them. They felt like they'd lost and would remain lost in exile forever in wilderness, in grief, so Isaiah, and this is more than 500 years before John the Baptist and Jesus, Isaiah was the prophet who assured Israel that there would be a way back. They would be found. 
God's promised land would be returned. Grief would fade. Now, it happened to be that the physical road, the actual road from Babylon to Jerusalem was a rough one. It was uneven. It was a long distance, plenty of literal ups and downs. But, of course, Isaiah also knew there would be metaphorical highs and lows as well. So, the promise that Isaiah gave to the people amidst the pain of exile 500-plus years before Jesus was, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. And here was the promise Isaiah gave, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This was like Isaiah's signature line. This was what Isaiah was known for as much as anything, was this verse meant to announce good news to those in exile. And it got used a lot for the Hebrew people in the midst of whatever exile or grief they knew. So, notice, it's not just that God is on the way or that our path back will be made easier by God or more comfortable. It's also that the world will be turned upside down. You know, in Mary's Magnificat, she'll say, He's brought the powerful down from their thrones and uplifted the hungry of heart. Luke, in his gospel, talks about these reversals a lot, often, which isn't anything new. From Genesis onward, we see God doing a lot of reversal work. When valleys are filled, mountains are made low, when all flesh shall see the salvation of God. These are big reversals, radical transformations. Luke is saying, another one is upon us. We've seen these kinds of reversals ourselves. It's like a, a black man who a hundred years earlier could have been enslaved legally standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963 and speaking to tens of thousands of people in person and millions through this medium television, and he says he has a dream. That's a reversal over the course of a century. John, not a high priest, in the wilderness, not the temple or a palace, quotes, in the midst of Roman occupation and every other worldly challenge they knew at the time, he quotes a good old piece of good news, prepare the way of the Lord. They would have known what that means. And now that you know why it's such a big deal, not only what it says, but who says it, and the significance of where he says it from, hear this good old piece of good news for yourself in 2021. This is not good news that was meant just for the people who heard John the Baptist at the time. We read it again here in worship because it's for us today. Prepare the way of the Lord. It's not being announced today by Jeff Bezos or by Elon Musk or by President Biden or any other worldly power just by me and a bunch of other pastor types like me. And it's not being said from any capital or from Wall Street or from whoever the greatest influencer on Instagram is with the most followers. It's being said among church people like you who live lives of faith. And it's being announced into a pretty broken, fear-filled world. And yet, as much as it 
was true in the day of Isaiah, as much as it was true in the day of John the Baptist, today it is again true. Yesterday, Pastor Karen and a number of other First Lutheran members participated in the White Privilege Symposium downtown. There were people there from as far away as Washington, D.C. It was a pretty big deal, it turned out. And the event used three words to center our discussions, history, truth, and action. And in one workshop that I went to, the specific topic was churches and the way we mostly unconsciously participating we, in the ways we unconsciously participate in guarding white privilege. And it led to a discussion about what is church for, after all? Like, what is the point? And one person there, remembering the three words that were at the heart of our discussions, one person there said, truth. Church is about truth. Sometimes truth comforts us especially when we're among the ones who are marginalized or victimized or afflicted in any way. Other times, truth convicts us, challenges us, maybe even makes us angry. I've had that happen for me. But once a church leaves truth over there, typically in favor of just making sure everybody feels comfortable, as though church only exists to make us feel good, that's when church becomes something else. I'd say more like a club. And we're always tempted to make this into a club. And you can be parts of lots of other clubs. Maybe the, the club that bikes or a club that plays volleyball or plays cards or whatever. But First Lutheran is not a club. This community does not exist for our comfort, only so that we would feel good. This community exists so that God's truth is proclaimed and then lived out by you and by all of us together in a world that we believe is about to turn. Our text from Luke is a truth text. It claims that the one true God is one who enters into vulnerable times and dangerous spaces that the one true God routinely shows up in wilderness and there, away from the worldly powers, drops a message, a message that is able to then live through communities of grace like ours. And through those communities like ours, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Usually, all flesh sees skin color and the education levels of neighbors and age and gender and wealth status and illness and ugliness. Usually all flesh looks for ways to dehumanize others, which really just diminishes ourselves. Into all that twisted seeing, God shows up again in our wilderness in 2021, today and makes a straight path to us. God comes to us so that we and so that all may see salvation. That is grace and mercy and peace and joy and love. Thanks be to God. Amen.